0: Due to the sensitive nature of today's material, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex, murder, and death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Poland,
1: 1932. The globe was on the brink of World War II, but a 33-year-old priest named Alexander Doibner had something else on his mind, sex.
0: Shocking for a priest, we know. But Doibner didn't care about his celibacy vow. During his latest assignment in Poland, he snuck off to a small apartment in Warsaw to meet his secret lover.
1: Once he was safely inside, he kissed Clara Zetkin, a radical German communist.
0: With the lights down low and candles aflame, they tore off each other's clothing as they tumbled onto the bed. They made passionate love in secret. Then, they got
1: down to the real business. Zetkin and Doibner spread piles of papers out on the bed. They compared notes while Doibner shared top-secret documents. See, their relationship wasn't just about love
0: or lust. There was a whole other layer to their affair. One that had nothing to do with romance or breaking vows.
1: Because... Deubner wasn't just any ordinary priest. He was a Vatican spy.
0: Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy.
1: And I'm Molly Brandenburg.
0: And neither of us are conspiracy theorists.
1: But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth.
0: But sometimes it's not.
1: You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
0: This is our one-part episode on the Vatican's most mysterious spies. From the 1800s until World War II, the Catholic Church allegedly utilized espionage for clandestine missions.
1: Today, we'll discuss the history behind the pontiff as both a religious and governmental leader on the Italian peninsula, and how the Church has been entwined in politics since the days of Napoleon. Then,
0: we'll examine one main theory, that the Catholic Church has used secret agents throughout the years to do its bidding and ensure its survival.
1: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's hel slash conspiracy. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, Have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find The Underworld Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New season out on Spotify soon. Today, the Vatican is often perceived as the mysterious and powerful enigma at the head of the Catholic Church. But the name actually refers to two entities, the Catholic leadership, including the Pope, as well as the city-state within Rome, Italy.
1: Vatican City spans only 121 acres, under one quarter of a square mile. And yet, it's considered its own country. But the region wasn't always this small. To really understand what secrets could be hidden in the modern Vatican, you first need to know how vast and mighty it once was. As
0: early as 756 CE, 300 years after the fall of the Roman Empire, the Italian peninsula looked pretty different than it does today. In fact, the country of Italy and Vatican City didn't exist yet.
1: Instead, the peninsula was home to several separate regions that operated independently. Some were long-held territories of other empires, like the Byzantines, and others were newly established, like Charlemagne's Carolingian society. But one was led by the Pope, the Papal States.
0: Despite its plural name, the Papal States was one singular country. For the most part, the territory had large amounts of land near Rome, including Umbria and Marche.
1: In addition to ruling the Papal States, the Pope was also the leader of the Catholic Church It was a unique display of the often controversial combination of church and state. Though
0: land changed hands over time, things remained like this for over a millennium, until Napoleon Bonaparte tried to take over the region in the late 1700s. He wound up controlling most of the continent, about half a million square miles from Holland to Rome.
1: Then, starting in 1814, Europe saw significant change. In April, Napoleon was forced out of power in France. Several European countries met at the Congress of Vienna, where they restored Europe's original borders, including the republics of the Italian peninsula, like the Papal States.
0: Soon after, an activist named Giuseppe Mazzini aspired to make the Italian peninsula one unified country. He envisioned it as a second coming of the Roman Empire.
1: It was a mighty effort that eventually gained steam, though it lacked focus and therefore took on many forms. For example, some wanted to live in a united Italy under one government, others wanted a monarchy, while a few wanted one big republic.
0: And supporters from each of these factions were allied with secret political groups, including one called the Carbonaria.
1: The Carbonaria's underground network consisted of everyone, from middle-class workers to businessmen and intellectuals. They challenged the status quo, sparking several uprisings over the next few decades.
0: Because of that, the members of the Carbonaria, called Carbonari, and other revolutionaries found themselves unwelcomed in the Papal States. Citizens who collaborated with them would be arrested and sometimes sentenced to death.
1: Still, these revolutionary organizations stood their ground. Even though they shared the common goal of a unified Italy, they never quite agreed on how they'd get there. Or what the country might look like once they achieved it.
0: What these groups needed was direction and a powerful ally. But it was clear the Papal States and Pope Leo XII would not provide either. So they turned to the Sardinian king, Victor Emmanuel II.
1: Emmanuel was a liberal ruler who believed in two things above all, Rome should be the capital of a united Italy, and the church should operate separately from the government.
0: Which is why the next pope, Pius IX, saw Victor Emmanuel II as his biggest foe. A staunch traditionalist, Pius IX wanted to keep his dual role as the Papal State's religious and government leader.
1: The budding tensions were a harbinger of what was to come. But in the time being, Victor Emmanuel II still respected the pontiff and the church's influence, not just in the papal states, but in his burgeoning nation of Italy.
0: So Emmanuel and the revolutionaries joined forces and focused on other smaller countries first. One by one, they claimed each territory they defeated, making them part of what would become the Italy we know today.
1: Before long, Victor Emmanuel II declared himself king of Italy, with his eye on Rome as the capital of the new unified country.
0: But that was a little premature. He still had one more small region to conquer before he ruled it all, the Papal States.
1: At the time, the Papal States split the newly united peninsula in half, which was unacceptable to King Victor Emmanuel and his men. They refused anything less than unifying the entire region.
0: So, despite the king's immense respect for the pontiff, Victor Emmanuel
1: II saw no other option but to go to war with the papal states. In preparation, the pontiff readied his papal army. Yes, the church had an army of 15,000 soldiers. But they were outnumbered by Victor Emmanuel's 35,000 men.
0: So, on September 18, 1860, Victor Emmanuel II's military defeated the papal army. Many of the papal soldiers even surrendered to the other side. As a result, Victor Emmanuel II took over two papal states' regions, Umbria and Marche.
1: Now, only Rome was left under the pope's control. Desperate to defend the only region he had left, Pius IX made one last valiant effort. In 1861, he created a volunteer army called the Papal Zouaves, named after a powerful French 19th century regiment. Pius IX probably hoped the name would match his new legion's effectiveness.
0: This time, he recruited around 3,000 fighters from all over the world, The battalion consisted of young, strong, Catholic men from all over Europe. But as they tried to defend Rome from Victor Emmanuel II's soldiers, Pius IX's army weakened. The Pope needed more men.
1: In 1868, he turned to a burgeoning Catholic nation across the pond, Quebec, Canada. When the Pope asked them to fight, many volunteered in the name of God.
0: Still, Pius IX's army was lackluster, to say the least. By the end, the papal states had assembled an army of only 8,000 men.
1: The papal zouaves were no match for Victor Emmanuel II's army of 65,000, armed with 150 different siege weapons. The king's army slayed many of the papal soldiers in Rome's streets, leaving them there for all to see.
0: After battling for six days in September of 1870, Pope Pius IX told his men to surrender. The Papal States and the Pope's government powers
1: were dead. Pius IX had no choice but to let Victor Emmanuel take Rome and create the United Kingdom of Italy.
0: The Pope dramatically declared himself a prisoner of this new country, Pope Pius IX locked himself in his palace in Rome and refused to step foot in the soils of the new nation.
1: He also insisted the Catholic Church had a solemn right to the territories it had lost.
0: But the Italian Parliament wasn't going to give up that land. Thus, the tug-of-war between the two entities lasted for over 50 years.
1: Both Italy's next king and subsequent pope carried on in a stalemate as the 20th century began.
0: And soon, more challenges befell the Catholic Church, including scathing criticism from a truly unexpected source.
1: Up next, the Pope contends with disapproval from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing.
0: Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history.
1: Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case.
0: You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.
1: Now back to our story.
0: In the late 1800s, the Papal States lost its land to the newly formed country of Italy. But as the 1900s began, the religion had something else to contend with rebellion. And it wasn't in the form of war or
1: spies yet. It was mostly in art, writing, and thoughts. The movement was called modernism. Free thinkers
0: sought to express themselves in untraditional ways. Poets like E. E. Cummings broke away from the usual formulaic verses. Sigmund Freud pioneered the foundations of psychoanalysis. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica's ninth edition featured something out of the ordinary, an essay by Scottish scholar and editor William Robertson Smith that criticized
1: the Bible. For what might have been the first time in history, Robertson's work publicly questioned whether or not the Bible was a historical record, arguing that it was mostly fiction.
0: Smith's piece rocked everything the world thought about Christianity, and it greatly weakened people's faith in Christian religions, including Catholicism. Soon, more writers like Ernesto Bonaiuti
1: and Alfred Loisi began criticizing the religion as well. For Pope Pius X, this was a huge crisis 30 years earlier the catholic church had lost its land and the pope had lost his right to lead now it seemed the faith would lose its parishioners too
0: but Pius x might have been overreacting at the time in the early 1900s there were 266 million catholics around the world it was still italy's most popular religion It didn't seem likely that Catholicism would collapse because of a few deniers.
1: Still, Pius X took matters into his own hands. He doubled down on his own traditional views in a public letter titled Feeding the Lord's Flock. In it, he denounced modernists and their so-called attacks on the Bible and scared his followers away from modernism.
0: He wrote that the freethinkers had a secret agenda to destroy Catholicism. He called them, quote, the most pernicious of all the adversaries of the church. And Pius X believed for any Catholics who became modernists, there would be dire consequences.
1: The works of modernist writers landed on the church's banned books list, which Catholics weren't allowed to read from. Any authors who refused to stop criticizing the religion received the most severe punishment in all of Catholicism, excommunication from the church.
0: This added to the tension that was already boiling in Italy, at least until the 1920s. Around then, an Italian fascist named Benito Mussolini gained more influence.
1: Mussolini acknowledged the new united Italy, But he also longed for the sprawling, vast Roman Empire that used to exist. He aimed
0: to make Italy match and surpass the power it had during the long-gone Roman Empire. Also, like many popes, Mussolini was a traditionalist. He didn't want Italians to embrace modern values, like democracy and separation of church and state. But before he could set Italy's clock back more than a thousand years, Mussolini needed to
1: take power. On October 28, 1922, he led a successful coup on Italy's parliament. King Victor Emmanuel III, Victor Emmanuel II's grandson, desperately wanted to prevent an Italian civil war with the fascists. So he tried to appease Mussolini by putting him in charge of the government as prime minister. With Mussolini at the helm, Italy slowly turned into a fascist state.
0: During this time, Mussolini embraced Catholicism, so he set about making the church an ally. In fact, he wanted to make it the official religion of fascist Italy. To the church, this was much better than the other 1920s alternative, communism of the Soviet Union, which enforced atheistic ideals.
1: So, negotiations between Pope Pius XI and Mussolini began. On February 11, 1929, they came to a historic agreement called the Lateran Treaty, It gave the Pope full governmental authority over the 100-plus acres located inside Rome.
0: It wasn't as much land as the Pope once ruled, but it was enough to end the bickering. They named it
1: Vatican City. Much like it did during the Papal States era, the modern Vatican functions like a separate country with its own government. It produces its own euros, stamps, and license plates. The city-state even has its own flag and national anthem.
0: Similar to other politicians around the world, the Pope has an administration called the Roman Curia. It's filled with staff members to help him rule and run the papal household. And like other major countries, Vatican City has a chief diplomat, the Secretary of State.
1: One thing the Vatican doesn't seem to have is an official intelligence agency
0: or so they claim this brings us to our main conspiracy theory that the pope and the catholic church secretly operated several spy rings over many centuries and they might have given the catholic church more influence over international politics than anyone ever knew
1: In 2002, a politics professor at St. Mary's College of California named David Alvarez published a book called Spies in the Vatican. In it, he alleged that the first instance of Catholic church espionage actually happened during the post-Napoleonic period.
0: It was July 1817 the period when Italian revolutionaries fought across the boot-shaped peninsula for a united country. During this time, the papal state still existed, much to the chagrin of the
1: revolutionaries. There was one major organization making waves. While Alvarez didn't name the group in the book, the details align with the Carbonaria Society, the largest underground rebellion at the time. And apparently, They were plotting to overthrow Pope Pius VII.
0: The Fermo plan never actually happened, but we could imagine it might have looked like a similar uprising a few miles away.
1: On the night of June 24, 1817, the revolutionaries planned to gather 400 people to march into the papal state's town of Macerata. Supposedly, they convinced some papal guard to let them into the territory unnoticed.
0: From there, the plan was to attack the police and light fires at the town's highest point. This would be their signal to other groups to join the revolt.
1: But the evening didn't go according to plan. Out of the 400 people who agreed to participate, only a dozen showed up. And ironically, the papal police attacked the folks who went they were armed and fully prepared to fight. Meaning
0: someone may have leaked the revolt to the papal police before the event.
1: A month later, a possible Carbonari revolutionary named Paolo Monti likely saw that failure and felt nervous. So he went to talk to the local bishop in Fermo. According to Alvarez's book, Monti wanted to confess his crimes seeing as he was involved in the Fermo plot.
0: Not knowing what to do, the bishop sent Monti to Rome to talk to the Roman Curia. There, the papal police director general Tiberio Pacca supposedly interviewed Monti. Pacca loved investigating underground groups. In fact, he got promoted to his current job after he busted Napoleon's secret attempts at a comeback in Europe. Perhaps he could get another promotion if he took down the Carboneria members.
1: So Paca didn't arrest or charge Monty. Instead, he told the young man to stay in the organization and report back on the group. Which is exactly what Monty did. He gave up details about who was in the organization, how it was structured, and any plans for future attacks.
0: According to Alvarez's research, Monte's espionage helped the papal police arrest over 30 revolutionaries and stalled the nationalist movement for a bit. It may have even extended the lifeline of the papal states as a country and gave the church a taste of how intelligence could give them an advantage.
1: Up next, Vatican spies and their role in World War II. Now, back to the story.
0: In the early 1800s, the Papal States realized they could use spies to help stave off revolts and gather information on their worst enemies.
1: But that approach didn't end after the region was conquered. In fact, by the early 20th century, the Catholic Church may have made the decision to employ more spies, especially when modernists began questioning Christianity and the Bible.
0: In the early 1900s, Pope Pius X published his creed about how much he hated modernists, but it was just the beginning of his campaign against them.
1: Soon, the Holy Father used more forceful tactics, He made current and future clergy members take an oath against modernism. Then, he removed any suspected modern thinkers from Catholic seminaries and schools. Around this time, he became aware of an ambitious
0: young priest named Umberto Benigni. Early in his career, Benigni wanted fame and fortune, but he'd yet to find either. In the meantime, he worked as an editor for the Catholic newspaper called The Voice of the Truth.
1: There, he wrote articles defending Pope Pius X's power in Rome and denouncing any opposing views. Benigni was a staunch traditionalist, just like the pontiff, and it made him very popular among the conservative leadership.
0: Eventually, the Roman Curia invited Benigni to work there, In 1906, he became a junior secretary in the Vatican State Department and worked closely with Secretary of State, Raffaele Mary Delval.
1: Almost immediately after he started, Benigni marched into Delval's office with a proposal on how to combat modernists in the church. It was a bold move for a new employee, but... Delval listened to Benigni, knowing how much the cause meant to the pontiff. Benigni
0: told him the key to tracking down hidden Catholic modernists was to look at who they associated with, meaning he wanted to spy on the clergy's collaborators
1: and their connections. Delval loved the idea and gave Benigni permission to start the espionage program, all with the tacit approval of Pope Pius X himself.
0: While it didn't technically have a name, Benigni created a Vatican organization to use as a front. Sotilitium Pianum, Latin for the Fellowship of Pious. Other than him, Del Valle, and the Pope,
1: nobody knew about it. Yet. According to Alvarez, Benigni became the de facto director of this clandestine intelligence agency. He used a small budget provided by Del but it wasn't reported in the official Vatican ledgers or yearbook.
0: Benigni had total control over the group. He recruited secret agents and informants from all over Europe, North, and South America to bust potential
1: modernists. Including medieval historian Antonio de Stefano. According to Alvarez, in 1909, de Stefano operated a European modernist network out of his home in Geneva, Switzerland.
0: For this takedown, Benigni took a two-pronged approach. First, he enlisted a young priest named Gustavo Verdesi to infiltrate the organization. Second, he recruited an agent to gain access to de Stefano's home under so-called friendly circumstances. That agent was Father Pietro Persabali, De Stefano's old pal from seminary school.
1: When De Stefano heard from Persabali, he suggested the father stay in his home as a house guest. He clearly had no idea Persabali had ulterior motives.
0: During the trip, Persabali grilled his unsuspecting buddy about religion and his contacts around Europe, but De Stefano mostly seemed preoccupied with his new magazine, The International Modernist Review, when the title of the publication alone was incriminating.
1: When De Stefano left his house, Crisaballi used the time to snoop around for more proof. He went through his friend's office desk, photographed key documents, even jotted down a list of every book in De Stefano's library noting works by modernist authors like Ernesto Bonaguti.
0: When Percivale returned to Rome, he turned over all the evidence to Benigni. It's unclear what Benigni did with it, if anything.
1: But we do know a little bit about Benigni's methods on other missions. At first, he only involved priests, seminarians, and conservative people. But eventually, he roped Italian police officers into his schemes.
0: Through it all, Benigni seemed to be the only person who talked to and advised the operatives. He even convinced the Italian post office to let him monitor the bishop's and priest's mail.
1: The agency also transcribed their sermons and kept an eye out for any incriminating speech. They looked for any mentions of wanting reforms or harboring discontent in the church.
0: After finding these so-called modernist perpetrators, Benigni reported the information to Cardinal Del and, by proxy, the Pope. Then he and his agents set out to ruin their lives.
1: Professors lost their tenures and jobs at Catholic institutions, Writers had their titles placed on the church's list of banned works. Priests who were found guilty were either transferred to faraway parishes or suspended indefinitely.
0: Even cardinals, who are the highest level of Catholic clerics before the Pope, were targets. Benigni labeled four cardinals in Paris, Milan, Brussels, and Vienna as modernists.
1: But in 1911, rumors began circulating that Benigni was running a spy program. It's unclear how the public felt about this speculation, or if they merely dismissed it as gossip. But bishops and cardinals became so upset that Delval himself had to calm them down.
0: Then a journalist named Guglielmo Quadroda published an on-the-record interview with Benigni's former private secretary, an ex-priest who had recently left the Catholic church to be a Methodist. He claimed he knew Benigni sent spies to infiltrate modernist circles.
1: We don't know if the former secretary gave the interview out of guilt or spite, but either way, it was a public relations nightmare. The Vatican had to take action. On
0: March 7th, 1911, the Vatican newspaper Lucervatore Romano announced that 48-year-old Benigni was getting a role change. Now, he would work as a protonitary apostolic, an honorary role that usually went to retired clergy and served more as a demotion than a promotion.
1: According to David Alvarez's book, many people believed Benigni had become a liability, Others thought he spent too much time spying, and not enough time being a diplomat.
0: And then there were those who speculated Benigni took his espionage too far and passed papal documents to Imperial Russia.
1: To be fair, no one has ever found proof of Benigni's spying, and the Vatican has never commented on it. Besides, much of the information around these examples is steeped in rumor, intrigue, and mystery. It's hard to say if any researcher could uncover all accounts of Benigni's secret plans.
0: To which, well, I'd be happy to shut this theory down, but the rumors of papal espionage don't end with Alvarez. Eighteen years after Benigni's spy games, towards the end of 1929, Pius XI allegedly formed a new intelligence unit. It was called the Vatican Special Offices Commission for Russia, referred to as Russicum for short. Their main objective was to convert Russian communist atheists to Catholicism.
1: According to Eric Fratini's book, The Entity, Bishop Michel d'Erbigny led the program and he recruited a 33-year-old priest named Alexander Doibner, a Russian whose family history defied nationalist tradition.
0: In the early 1900s, Doibner's father supported the Russian monarchy and the Russian Orthodox Church, but secretly converted to Catholicism. Later, Doibner's father sent him to a Catholic seminary in Belgium and Turkey. So if anyone was willing to side against the Russian status quo, it was Alexander Doibner. But Derbigny didn't know one main fact. Doibner was a traitor.
1: Not only did he break his priestly vows by having sex, he also gave German activist Clara Zetkin clandestine documents that she in turn passed on to Soviet agents. These papers contained key information, like Vatican spy service names, dates, cities, and operations.
0: Essentially, Deubner was a double agent playing both sides, the Vatican and the communists. We don't know why or who he was really loyal to, because Deubner himself was an enigma who enjoyed a bit of intrigue. He didn't seem to have a home and simply went wherever his assignments took him.
1: But... Like Benigni, rumors eventually did Deubner in. Within the Roman Curia, there was speculation over important documents that had gone missing from the Pope's desk. Curia officials thought it might've been Deubner.
0: When they asked Derbigni about it, he didn't accuse Deubner directly, but afterwards, Deubner disappeared without a trace. The Roman Curia interpreted this as an admission of guilt
1: the press got wind of Deubner's exploits and went to town european newspapers published headlines like soviet spy Deubner flees vatican he was now fully exposed in
0: 1932 the vatican tracked down and imprisoned doibner in berlin but true to form he disappeared again continuing to vanish and reappear every few years
1: meanwhile The Vatican responded to newspaper reports about Deubner, stating he was only a temporary Russica member. They claimed he never actually had access to important documents, like the ones on the Pope's desk.
0: As for Deubner's boss, Bishop Michel d'Erbigny, Pope Pius XI banished him to a monastery for letting this happen. And while that mission may have failed... Papal spying seemed to continue into World
1: War II. Six years later, in 1939, former Vatican Secretary of State Eugenio Pacelli became Pope Pius XII. He was a diplomatic man who hoped to improve the relationship between the Church and the fascists. When
0: World War II began, Pius XII pledged the Vatican would stay neutral So, in September of that year, the Pope remained silent as Hitler invaded Poland, a country that was 65% Catholic.
1: But even the Pope eventually reached a breaking point. Behind closed doors, Pius XII told his aides that Germany needed to get rid of the dictator.
0: The pontiff supposedly turned to espionage to get the job done. According to Mark Riebling's book, Church of Spies... Pius XII teamed up with double agent Josef Muller.
1: Publicly, Muller was a spy for the Obwehr, the Nazi intelligence agency. But privately, he was a devout Catholic who wanted to assassinate Hitler.
0: In turn, Muller became somewhat of a Vatican spy, quietly working with Pius XII. In the first three years of the war, he visited the Vatican around 150 times, presumably to strategize.
1: Before long, the German SS, the Nazi's paramilitary organization, caught on. Spies circulated around the Vatican, trying to sniff out Mueller's plan. So, Muller and the Pope began speaking through Pius XII's private secretary, Robert Leiber.
0: But teaming up with Muller wasn't enough. Pius XII needed a more powerful ally to help, like a European nation that was part of the Allied powers,
1: such as the United Kingdom. Late in 1939, Pius XII planted the seeds for a partnership in what seemed like an extended game of telephone. He apparently had a senior clergy member, Monsignor Ludwig Koss, dine with Darcy Osborne, the British ambassador.
0: During that meeting, Koss told him the Pope supported the downfall of Hitler. Later, Osborne alerted his superiors in London.
1: But there was a problem. They had no idea how they were actually going to do it. Opportunities came and faded quickly as the war progressed, but they were never able to achieve anything concrete.
0: This mission eventually failed and Gestapo officers caught Muller in 1940. They sent him to the Flossenburg concentration camp in Germany.
1: But Pope Pius XII and the Vatican never faced any punishment for the retaliation against the Nazi leader.
0: After the war ended in 1945, Pope Pius XII even asked his followers to show mercy for convicted German war criminals who were also Catholic.
1: It was a move that didn't seem to agree with his supposed plot to take down Hitler. Then again, a lot of these theories seem to align with history, but we lack the evidence to prove they were true beyond any doubt which is why I have to doubt whether some of these stories are true. The Vatican
0: likely has all of that proof in its secret archives, and like any government, it may declassify these missions one day. But for now, the anecdotal information and all of the books on it, eh, it's enough for me. I can see doubting Vatican espionage if it was just one rumor but the Catholic Church has faced this speculation numerous times throughout several eras
1: of its existence, and that can't be a coincidence. Even if it's true, the Pope and the Vatican have always been an enigma, and who knows if the entity will ever reveal the truth, or if it'll just continue operating in secrecy forever.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll be back next time with a new episode.
0: Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And
1: the official story isn't always the truth.
0: Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian bois Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Mallory Kara. Edited by Wendelin Sabrozo silva Sandistapan and Lori Gottlieb. Fact-checked by Kevin Johnson. Researched by Bradley Klein. Produced by Joshua Kern. And sound designed by Anthony Valsic. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved.
1: Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case, part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation.
0: Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.